Welcome back to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. We are picking up on a show we are doing with a professor of political science, William Ewell, old friend of mine, and we are looking at the top 10 burning questions that have started to emerge now that the dust is settling on the 2022 midterms. We've been kind of chopping it up on all kinds of juicy stuff like, will Kevin McCarthy still be the speaker or ever even become the speaker a year from now? Will the government shut down? Will Donald Trump be the Republican nominee? William, you were just evaluating the question of whether Joe Biden is going to end up being impeached. Go ahead. Yeah. And just to summarize what we were talking about before the break, Basically, it comes down to these nine Republicans who won in districts that Biden won in 2020. And what is their incentive structure? And they really have one of two options. One is to say, hey, I'm not going to vote to impeach Biden because I think it'll help my own reelection chances. Biden's popular in my district. I want to stay in office. Therefore, I won't vote with the Republicans. Or what we talk about in political science a lot is the value of the party label, meaning by voting with my caucus and improving the sort of reputation of the Republicans, you know, on some sort of congressional ballot, like, would you rather vote for Dems or Republicans? By upping sort of the Republican vote, by dragging down Biden, they make the calculation that even though they are in a district that Biden won, they're better off voting with the party in order to help sort of the party reputation going into 2024. That's the issue. I suspect they go with the latter and they worry more about party reputation than they do about their own reelection chances in their district and that we do see an impeachment of Biden. And I would probably put it at 75 to 25, likely that he does get impeached by the House. I just you're I mean, I'm so glad you brought up these nine Republicans in Biden districts because that is where it will come down. But this all circles back to the conversation we were having earlier about the impossibility of the job that Kevin McCarthy says that he wants to occupy, although his ability to make decisions over what he's going to have for dinner and how he drives to work and all kinds of basic things is very much in question. He's not a smart man. I, I, this is going to be an absolutely excruciating process for Kevin McCarthy, because he has got to know at some gut level that this is bad. This is politically bad. Now, there's probably a way that they'll try to do this. It is going to be kind of like a bizarro world, shadow, upside down version, like Stranger Things world of what Democrats just did with the January 6th committee. They will convene an investigation of Hunter Biden. They will literally trump up kind some kind of corruption charge that loosely seems to inveigle Joe Biden in some way and they will then use that as a predicate to impeach but what do you do if you are Kevin McCarthy do you imperil those nine members of your caucus by pushing forward with impeachment if you don't, how do you stand up to the Freedom Caucus members and the Trump Muppets who are going to be absolutely screaming at your door that you have to do this? How do you stand up against Donald Trump getting up on the news, getting up on Fox, getting up on conservative radio every single day and howling at you to do this? How long will he call you my Kevin or turn around and call you something a lot worse? I, I, It's going to be 
I'm with you on the odds. I think that at the end of the day, he will absolutely have to put the the squeeze on those nine members to force them to come along. This is what the caucus wants. There's the old Hastert rule, not the one about abusing children, the one about you do a majority of what the majority wants. So if the majority of Republicans want it, you do it. You know, that's probably what he's going to have to go with. Let me just hit you with one other number, though. From 1973 through 2012, about 40 years, 63 members of the House of Representatives died in office and 15 senators, by the way. And so you're talking about the likelihood of a four-seat Republican majority, four seats. We've seen several members of Congress die. It so happened that they were Republicans in office in the last term. We don't know what's going to happen, but we also saw Democrats massively overperform in special elections last year. Now that was based in part on Dobbs. But if Republicans put together some cockamamie impeachment of Joe Biden, and then they face a bunch of special elections and their majority is in the balance, that is going to weigh heavily on leadership's thinking. This is not a layup. That's all I'm saying is at the end of the day, I think you're right. I think the the odds are overwhelming that it's going to happen, but make no mistake under the surface, this is incredibly politically complicated. I mean, I feel like a theme that we've been weaving through each of these questions is sort of the impossible position that Republicans are in between now and the 2024 election, which is trying to both appeal to a broader swath of the electorate so that they can do better in sort of general elections, but also the fact that they're a bit of a held back by their base, which is really still very much pro-Trump and sort of pro-election denying group. And it's going to be really interesting to see how they sort of navigate that very fine line and trying to do both things. Well, can I throw you a curveball here? Not not a question I, I had in mind going into the show, but Look, on the roundtable show that I do with a Republican consultant and commentator, Alicia Preston, she raised the possibility. She thought that there was a chance that when Donald Trump announced that he was running for president on Tuesday night, that he was going to say, I'm running for president as a member of my new party, the MAGA party or the Save America party. And I thought, eh, and I said on the air, I, I, I don't think that that's particularly likely. It didn't work out that way. But William, do you think there what what do you think the odds are that there's going to be an actual schism in the Republican Party, given all of the difficulties that we've been talking about here and what you just said? What do you think the odds are that, for example, Liz Cheney runs for president intentionally as a third party candidate? in order to split the Republican vote. And you see a robust effort along the lines of the Lincoln Project to fund candidates who stand up to Trump. Is there is there a real chance here that you could see a real break in the Republican Party in the next two years? Yes, there's, there's a chance. I think that chance dramatically increases with a Trump loss in the primary election for president for 2024. And the Republican Party knows that. And that's one of the reasons why I put the odds of him being the nominee at 60 percent, because they can play that game. Right. They can say, hey, if he if he loses the nomination, 
the likelihood that he leaves, runs as a third party candidate and sort of absolutely destroys the party, there's a non-zero chance of that. And so uh, if that happens, I think there's a good chance that we see a huge schism. Could we see a, a really moderate, well, I'm, I wouldn't really call this Cheney a moderate, but when it comes to Trump, right? This is all an issue of comparison. I, I could see that happening. I don't think she would get enough of the Republicans to go with her to really make sort of a substantial difference in most of the country. So I think that's much less of a worry for Republicans than Trump taking his 35, 40% of the base and walking away. Now, there is a functional issue, which is that many states have sore loser laws and no one embodies the term sore loser more than Donald Trump. So this this is a requirement that if you lose in a primary, you can't then run in the general election as a member of another party. But most of those laws don't apply at the presidential level. And on top of that, there's a question about whether they're even constitutional. So I agree with you. There are scenarios where you could see Donald Trump fixing to lose. I mean, he doesn't believe in polling, but like he might be on a path to lose. He might start to lose. He might lose some initial contests. And there might actually be reasons for him to maintain a presidential campaign that he's likely to ultimately lose, even though he hates, psychologically, he can't abide the idea of being a loser. And, you know, a third party run would almost certainly be a losing proposition. But let's not forget that one of the major incentives he had to announce his presidential run this week was because he thinks, and Maggie Haberman reported this in the New York Times, he thinks that being an announced presidential candidate makes it harder on Merrick Garland, harder for him to be indicted for the many, many crimes that he's being investigated for. And he may have an incentive to keep that going. He may he may want that even if he knows he's likely to lose. So yeah, I could see a, I could see a number of ways. I think, I'll put it this way. I'm not going to put odds on it. I'm going to duck my own question. All right, I'll give odds, 35%. It's pretty high. I just think that the odds of a breakdown of the Republican Party are higher than we've certainly seen them in my lifetime. It's not unprecedented in American history for political parties to fall apart. And even if it's not a permanent schism, even if it's a one cycle kind of breakdown, I could see it. I, I really could see it. I would have to put it at 40% because I think it really comes down to if DeSantis wins, I think the chances of that schism happening are close to 100%. Uh, If Trump wins, I don't see it, you know, that would avoid the schism. So I I agree with you. I I think your calculation is pretty right on. (laughs) This is not a question, one of our 10 questions, but I do have a quick question for you. What are the chances that Trump gets indicted in the next two years? Wow. That's that's hard. That's hard. I I've had I've had Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid. I've had some some serious legal scholars on this show this year. I'm gonna have to call them and ask. I'm gonna play this game with them. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of semi punt. You know how sometimes in the NFL they do the quick kick where the the, the quarterback just punts. I'm gonna try and do a quick kick on this one. That said, I, I I'm not gonna try and wriggle out of my own game setup here. I would say that I'd say it's 60, 40, that it happens. And my reasoning is there are too many cases, too many active cases going on right now where there is 
just based on leaks. And I do not believe in vigilante justice. I do not believe in trying legal matters in the court of public opinion. I don't believe you can be convicted on MSNBC. But there's enough evidence that we know about in the public domain, for example, in the Mar-a-Lago case, where, boy, Trump has to has to have a lot of things break right for him. The, the case against him getting indicted is that ultimately this decision, for the most part, is in the hands of Merrick Garland. And Merrick Garland is a very thoughtful, careful, judicious judge who knows that part of prosecutorial discretion is considering the overall environment of the consequences of, of what an indictment would mean. And he may judge that if it's not overwhelmingly likely to result in a conviction, or if the negative consequences of pursuing an indictment would be greater than the positive consequences, he might not pursue it. The final thing I'll say, though, is that I said mostly in the hands of Merrick Garland, but not entirely. Remember, there's a state-level prosecution. Potentially, there's a grand jury impaneled in Georgia looking at the election interference in the wake of the 2020 election. And that's not something that Merrick Garland controls. And that's another factor. So 60-40. I would put it at slightly higher, although I would have put it higher last week. I do think Trump's calculation to announce early to put greater political pressure on Merrick Garland is not an incorrect sort of assessment by him. I do think it it raises the bar for Merrick Garland and makes it less likely than it was before he, he announced his running that it makes it less likely that Merrick Garland would put forward. So I would still put it at higher at 60%, but not much higher. Mm. All right, that was a bonus one. Should I go or should you go? Go ahead. All right. Ah, this is this is a curveball one. I've been I've been talking about this a little bit on the show recently. I'm really curious what you think. What are what are the odds that Democrats are going to look back in two years and decide that there were some major downsides to how well they did in the 2022 midterms? So I don't believe you can ever say 100 percent. So I won't go with 100 percent, but I'm going to put it at 99 percent. And that is wow. Even with even with the blue crush, even with how well they did. In fact, how well they did is more of a reason to say they're going to look back in two years and think we should have done more of assessment. Losing is the best medicine in politics, and there's not a close second, right? Losing really, in most cases, with the exception of the 2020 Republicans right, is usually an incentive for you to sort of do a thorough investigation of how you did, where you could have done better, where you could have done a better messaging. I don't think at all the Democrats did a fabulous job here. What I think the mistake they're making is they're looking at the overreach by Republicans, nominating a lot of poor quality candidates, nominating a bunch of election deniers, and that made a marginal difference. But I mean, you know, just look at Carrie Lake in Arizona, an election denier. She lost by 20. Yeah, even your, even your dog finds her objectionable. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, she lost by 20,000 votes. That is not, that's a very small margin. 
And so (laughs) what you're basically saying here is Democrats in this cycle woke up on third base and they thought they hit a triple and and they had a lot of things break right for them that might not have and might not happen again. And I I just I, I, I know I pushed you on this a second ago, but I'm actually I'm in total agreement with you. The hardest thing in the world to do is have something go well and then sit down and say, what could we have done better here? And there's that's the situation that Democrats are in right now. I, I want to just point out two things. One is we're not as certain as the pundits would make it seem about why we did well this cycle. It's easy to say like, oh, abortion. You know, voters came out in exit polls and 27% said it was their number one issue. It seemed to be the number two issue overall. So abortion must have clearly been a winning edge for us. Oh, all the Trump election denying candidates lost with, I think, one exception of one secretary of state candidate in one state in Indiana. So pretty much that that must mean that, that Trump was toxic. But we're not as sure of that as it would seem. We don't. We don't actually have the data to tie that together. We're all speculating. We're all kind of looking at correlations and saying, well, we see this number over here and we see this voting result over here. And the results are probably a lot more idiosyncratic than that. They probably have a lot more to do with all kinds of factors like as you said, candidate quality in individual races, the individual dynamics of those races and how Democrats raise money. The fact that they raise more money to their individual campaigns, whereas Republicans raise money to independent groups. And you get to put a lot more ads on TV if you raise money to your campaigns because ads are cheaper for campaigns. So Democrats, when all the dust sells and we do all the accounting, they may have actually just gotten a lot more ads in front of people. Maybe that was a factor. We don't really fully understand everything that went on, and it would be a mistake for us to assume that we do and to say, well, we ran this playbook this time and it worked. Therefore, we have a winning playbook. Case closed. Well, we also ha- might have the fallacy of low expectations, right? We, ever, all the pundits are saying Republicans, uh, Democrats did so well against expectations. But when you look at how Democrats did compared to what the actual polls suggested they would do, they were pretty right on, right? Which, if you look at it, was lost by 4% among all House races nationwide. That is not a good performance by the Democrats. It's just was better than they expected given the sort of media narrative and the state of the economy. So one really good example of this, and I'll ask a question, right? to to you about this, which is they continue to underperform among Hispanic voters, which if you are the Democrats is a serious, serious problem moving forward. That is a group of voters that you need to hang on to in fairly high numbers. If this sort of Obama coalition that you created and you want to keep moving forward to win national elections, You have to keep winning that electorate. And that electorate is only going to grow, as we know, into the future. So my question for you, Matt, related to this whole topic is, what are the odds that Democrats will reverse their decline among Hispanic voters in 2024? I think the odds (laughs) are low because, and I'll I'll give you 
Because in order for Democrats to stop the slide, they would either have to get lucky, and I'm not going to bet on luck, or they'd have to identify the causes of the slide and fix them. And as you just said, and I'm glad you tied these two questions together, they don't have a lot of incentives to look in the mirror right now because they're, they're right off a victory or what they see as a victory. But there's another way of looking at the election. Not only did they lose the popular vote by four points, but they also, as I pointed out in that article right before the election, they were sitting on historic achievements, the greatest year of job growth in American history, the most manufacturing jobs created in the last 30 years, adding 6 million people to get affordable health insurance, all of these core economic accomplishments that they should have been able to sell, especially to working Americans, to non-college educated Americans who have been absolutely hammering the Democrats and flooding toward the Republican Party. And that's the pattern that you're seeing among Hispanic voters as well. The slide has continued. Democrats carried Hispanic voters nationwide, 56% to 39%. This year. Well, a 17 point margin is nothing to sneeze at. Don't get me wrong. That's still that's still a strong margin, but it's down 12 points relative to 2020 and it's down 18 points relative to 2018. Our our margin used to be an absolute crush. Hispanic votes were a dependable engine of the party. And now they're a it's a winning margin. But as Republicans begin to claw back, claw them back and claw them back, it's it's becoming a real source of loss. And Democrats did particularly poorly among Hispanic men. We only carried that that group by six points, and it's even worse when it comes to working class, non college educated Hispanic voters. It all goes back to what I think is the core problem which is something I've talked about with Elaine Kmark, the the Democratic thought leader on this show, with Mark Bergman, the Democratic media consultant, that we really don't have an economic message as a party to give to non-college educated voters that doesn't involve raising taxes on the rich and giving away more government money through programs. That's the economic prescription that we have to offer. And is it highly appealing to college-educated Democratic voters? Yes, it is. But is it highly appealing to other kinds of folks in America? No, it's really not. And having the resume that Joe Biden had in this election cycle of incredible economic achievement and not being willing to talk about it, actually spending 10 times more on ads about abortion than on ads about jobs and the economy. And look, again, it worked. It worked. We think, you know, we think that that was part of the reason. So I'm not quibbling with it as a strategy. It was probably the right tactical strategy. But the fact that it wasn't even a choice, that inside campaigns with all the consultants, all the media people, all the candidates, all the campaign experts that I've interviewed on this show over the last year, and none of them were sitting around in rooms saying, hey, you know what we could do as a campaign message? We could run on the greatest year of job growth in history. It seems like I've seen that playbook before and it's been pretty great. 
Should we at least consider that? The fact that that wasn't happening goes to show that Democrats still don't have a great way of talking about that. That long rant was all by way of saying that you've got to fix the core problem, which I think is about how you talk about jobs, how you talk about economic opportunity, how you talk about the economy in general. You have to figure out a way to talk about those topics and talk about them with and to and not down to non-college educated voters and Hispanic voters and the intersection of those two groups. And Democrats haven't figured out a way to do that. And they don't seem to have a lot of incentive to figure out a way to do that. So I think the odds are pretty low. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think this is a case where we don't often look to losses in, in terms of trying to learn lessons in elections. But I think Tim Ryan in Ohio is an excellent, excellent example of someone who lost but outperformed the Democratic candidate Joe Biden in Ohio in the last election cycle by trying to talk about these working class issues in a way that few Democrats are. And while it didn't propel him to victory, it certainly did make inroads with working class voters in that state. And I think if you could, and as you mentioned, those working class voter issues also speak to this Hispanic group of voters and I think if the Democratic Party is going to be successful moving forward, they've got to slow the loss of working class voters. And that means taking on more of a working class message like a Tim Ryan in Ohio than they have sort of typically over the last several election cycles. Hey, can I throw a bonus one? I know we pitched this as 10 questions, but you know we're not so great at math. Speaking of being great at math, you are actually a noted expert on sort of the, uh, the, the the cogs and gears of democracy. That's it's something you've written about. It's something you've, you've focused on. You've done some academic work on it. I want to talk to you about gerrymandering, you know, and I, I guess I'll put this in an odds kind of framework because that's the theme of the show. What I want to ask you is this, but this is going to be, this is going to be a bit of a stem winder of a question. All right. So what I'm going to come around to is gerrymandering, but can I, let me just throw some numbers at you. All right. Politico did an analysis of this. And they found that in districts where Republicans completely oversaw redistricting, i.e. they gerrymandered the heck out of these districts, in the 2022 midterms, Republicans won 131 of those seats, Democrats only 42. It was an absolute three to one slaughter whenever Republicans were in charge of drawing the district lines. Everywhere else, it was pretty good for Democrats right? As a matter of fact, another way of saying that is the only place that Republicans were able to win is where they completely oversaw redistricting. Now, the other three categories, it's no surprise that when Demi Democrats completely oversaw redistricting, they did a little gerrymandering, okay? They, they indulged themselves in a little bit of gerrymandering as well. They won 35 out of 41 of those seats. But then there are these other two types of places. There are districts where independent groups oversaw redistricting, and Democrats won those 67 to 31, so a two-to-one margin. Then there are places where courts oversaw the redistricting. Again, I don't think that the courts are putting their thumbs on the scale in a partisan way, and they Democrats won those 57 to 41. So my point here is Democrats should have a lot more faith in independent commissions, in courts, in not gerrymandering, 
they they will tend to win when the maps are fair. And in fact, karmically, if they had if they had not overreached so badly by trying to gerrymander in New York and having a Republican special master redraw those districts, they might have won seven more seats. They might be holding the majority today. So, William, what are the odds that Democrats are going to expand the number of states where districts are drawn fairly in the next two years? Good question, right? Yeah, we're getting into really technical stuff here. So Democrats Democrats have not done well in recent years in controlling state houses. Prior to this election, I think Republicans controlled 63 of the, the total 199, because Nebraska is just one, not, not a bicameral legislature. Out of 99, they controlled 63. So they controlled the vast majority of state houses and not surprisingly, they are able to sort of parlay that into a lot of redistricting, which is why, as you just mentioned, they had triple the number of districts that were gerrymandered compared to Democrats. That changed a little bit in this election. Democrats took control of chambers in Michigan, Minnesota. They also took control in Maryland and Massachusetts. The issue is, though, most of those states already look pretty good for Democrats. So while, yes, they may be able to squeak out a few more districts if they decide to do some gerrymandering in those states, I don't expect it to have a huge impact on 2024. And Republicans, there's still a few houses that we're not sure about, but it looks like Republicans are still going to control 55 houses to 40 for the Democrats, at least, in the next election, through the next election cycle. So Republicans continue to have a huge advantage when it comes to control of state legislatures. And so I, I expect their ability to continue to control and, and gerrymander more of these districts nationwide to continue through the next several election cycles. Yeah, I, I, I don't anticipate Democrats fixing things that much, unless the one curveball might be Ohio operated under a map that the Ohio Supreme Court found unconstitutional and Republicans just kind of delayed and ran out the clock and basically reached a point where the court, you know, they basically said to the court, well, you can't hold an election unless you go with this map. So I guess we're stuck with it, even though you said it was gerrymandered illegally. It's, it's what we got. The problem there is that the court said that on a four to three majority and the Republican chief justice who sided with the, the idea that that was an unconstitutional map, Republican chief justice retired. And now there's a new judge in that seat and it's a Republican. And so I, I think the court standing firm on that ruling, a little dicey at this point, we may just be stuck for the next 10 years with that Ohio map. But there's a chance. There's a chance. So just to wrap this up, then I have one last question for you. All right. Okay? And this this is really the, the most important question we have today, which is what are the odds we have a constitutional meltdown in 2024? Define that as you will. I will answer that question. I will. I want to I want to get there by talking about how the odds have shifted. The odds were 
in my mind, as recently as a couple of months ago, I think the odds were greater than 50-50. And I don't think most Americans fully appreciated how bad the situation was. Major authors, analysts, people who had really thought about this and looked closely at it. I'm not, I know people like to dismiss all oh, the experts say. People who really took the time and understand how the system works had looked at this and had been raising red flags for a long time now. People like Barton Gelman in The Atlantic about how bad this was going to be. I think those odds improved. And by improved, I mean, didn't get worse for America. I think the, the, the odds of a constitutional meltdown went down last week because so many of these nut jobs in states that would be battleground states in 2024, where either Doug Mastriano, who would have controlled the election infrastructure in Pennsylvania, he went down, or the secretaries of state in all of those battlegrounds that were election-denying lunatics, that they all went down. That factor helps. The fact that Trump is weaker than he was helps. The fact that the online disinformation, social media, Russia bot farm mills are suffering right now, I think helps. The fact that Facebook has announced that it's going to try to get out of the news business. The fact that Twitter faces a real possibility of going into bankruptcy. That, that's something that Elon Musk put on the table himself. There's even a chance, frankly, that Twitter doesn't exist in a year. But we're seeing massive layoffs in a lot of these social media companies. You know, And Meta, the parent company of Facebook, has lost 70% of its value since the 2021 peak. Google is down 36%. So you see these big platforms that have been part of the hacking of our democracy and the hacking of our brains struggling and having to reassess their entire model and maybe being incentivized now to move away from some of the things that poisoned us so badly in recent years. So I, to me, I think there are a number of factors that have improved the situation significantly. It will further improve if the Senate manages to reform the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which I won't explain in depth here, but you've probably heard of if you're listening to this show, that looks like it's set to happen during the lame duck session of this Congress. So I, there, there are hopeful signs, but I think the chances are still uncomfortably high. What do you think? I was ready to sort of strongly disagree with you until that last statement which is they are still uncomfortably high. Yes, does losing provide, particularly for election deniers, provide some incentive for the Republican party to decrease their sort of attack on democracy? I, I would say marginally so. That being said, right, we still have a United States demographic movement that is moving away from whites, particularly white Christians, that has created this conservative backlash, not only in the United States, but in, in much of the world. And I don't see that dynamic changing anytime soon. 
when you only have a system with two parties and one party is incentivized, and I don't see that that incentive has changed a whole lot based on the experts on this issue, that they're still incentivized to say, no, but we are the real Americans, not the other party. And therefore, when they win, their democratic wins are illegitimate because they're not real Americans. That continues to put sort of a potential constitutional crisis at an alarmingly high rate. So yes, are we better off? I will agree with you. Are we better off than we were two weeks ago? Yes. Are we still in a good place? Absolutely not. Right. And just to pile on, you and I both agreed that the odds of Donald Trump being the Republican nominee in 2024 are greater than 50-50. And so if he's the nominee, we're landed right back in the same predicament that we were in four years ago and, and uh, sorry, six years ago and, and, and two years ago. We still have the originator of the threat at our doorstep. And there's a flip side to everything I said about social media, which is where have the layoffs been in Twitter? Well, on Saturday night, the layoffs were among, were, were concentrated among 3,000 contract workers whose primary job is content moderation. And Twitter laid off half its staff. So you've got a social media platform already not exactly wielding a stellar record when it comes to truth-telling and containing misinformation that has now gotten rid of many of its gatekeepers and is incentivized to try to make up the revenue somewhere that's not necessarily great. You know, I, so I, at the end of the day, we could very well be staring down the barrel of it's, let's call it September 2024. Donald Trump is the nominee and the Russians are right back at it and they're stinging from their painful war in Ukraine. And they're very, very angry at Joe Biden, who has led the Western coalition against them. And they really, really want Donald Trump back. And they're deploying everything that they have under the sun to try to make that happen. And it's all flowing through these social media networks that are not keeping up the gates at all anymore. And, you know, we have the Electoral Count Act fixed a little bit. That's good, I guess. But you know, the, the Republican Party is probably knuckled under to Donald Trump again. That's a very real possibility. So I, again, that's that's why I land back at this place of, I feel better. But if we sleep on how big the threat is at this point, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Absolutely. I totally agree. And not to end on nothing but negative thoughts. Yeah, please. Let's not do that. We have seen some movement, as we've talked about, from the Republican Party to say, wait a second, if we're just interested in sort of electoral victories, a movement away from what Trump is selling, which is anti-democratic, could be electorally positive for us. That's the first time I can say that or we can say that in the past six years. So that's a, that's absolutely a positive development. Absolutely. I mean, look, there are I, I think to kind of bring this full circle, a lot has gone well. And you and I, you can tell that deep in our DNA, we're Democrats because we're finding a way to look inside this and say, oh, but I don't know, could be a lot worse than it seems. Make no mistake, the last week or so has been great. We have improved 
the prospects of America continuing to be a thing past 2024. We've improved the, the prospects for sane governance in this country. We've improved the prospects for having a rational balance of judges in this country. You know, from, from every discernible standpoint, things are much, much better, not just than our expectations would have been, but then all of the alternatives that were very, very real. And economically, we're seeing indications that the inflation wild ride might be coming to an end. And maybe there is a soft landing with only a mild recession or no recession at all. There are, there are a lot of reasons to feel relatively good about the direction we're, we're going in. I just think we're what we're both saying ultimately is it would be a mistake to look at all of the good news and not do at least a little bit of the exercise of, okay, how do we make sure that these things stick? How do we make sure that we don't backslide down into the, into the bad paths and we don't make all of the downsides that we were so worried about two weeks ago become a reality? Agreed. Yeah. What are the odds that we we put our listeners into a depression during this? Um, I would say that during the course of this discussion, somewhere in the course of this very, very long discussion, I'd say the odds are about a hundred percent, but I hope, I hope we've managed, we've managed to at least, you know, bring the receipts that we said we would in terms of what might be coming down the pike in the next two years. And uh, look at the end of the day, all of this is, all of this is unknowable. All of it's predictive. I think that overall we're on track for a relatively good two years, but you know, it's, it's, it's the prediction game. It's, it's fundamentally unknowable. All right. William Ewell, professor of political science and former staffer and all around good guy. Thanks for doing this with me. We'll have to do it again sometime soon. Matt, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.